It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. Welcome back to Play Tessie Episode 8, the Carl Yostremski episode. I'm Coop, that's Sammy, and that is Gordo, and this is the official podcast of Little Wayne's favorite cap to wear, also known as the official Red Sox podcast of WEEI, home of the Boston Red Sox. We've got a fun episode today. We've got Sean McAdam of Mass Live joining us, old friend of WEEI. He used to be doing the Sunday baseball show with Brad Foe. Um, this was a fun one. This was really good. I, Sean's got an incredible radio voice also, so I'm, I'm excited for people to weigh in on that. Uh, but we covered everything from, you know, what he, he's kind of like the muse of the Red Sox. He's been there. He's been covering the team for so long. Uh, and he's seen the waves of what this team has done. So we've talked about why ownership is tackling this current wave differently. Uh, we get into some of the trades and some of the free agency approach and why ownership might be doing these things differently than what we've seen in the past. And we pick his brain on some names that are out there. They, there've been certain names floating around that we want to get to the bottom of. So we talk to him. Uh, Sammy, what was your favorite part of the interview? What name your favorite word of the interview? Well, aside from Sean having like the most like perfect books on tape voice, ever, um, my favorite <laughs> word was Yamamoto when we discussed mm -hmm. Yamamoto and the chances of the Red Sox signing Yamamoto. And of course, you know, Sean gets into it, but a little preview, he likes the chances. They're not bad. That was that was a good time. That was a good time. Gordo, what was your favorite word of the interview? Favorite word? I'm not sure I have a favorite word. I just loved that this interview covered like we we got to everything and yeah. he, he's really generous with his time like full Sean, hour full yeah, hour full, of full Sean McAy. He, he we literally covered everything under the sun trades free agency like if 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 you've been wondering it, it it's in this interview so really excited to to have you guys listen I I really love the way that uh that he talks about like the ownership direction of this team and we get we get into that right off the bat but like he has a lot of really interesting things to say yeah. uh, the detail in regards to the ownership's Otani, direction. The, the Otani details he gave was really good. Like he really laid out the pros and the cons and there are cons. Uh, he laid them both out very well. So that's, I think uh, listeners will enjoy that as well. Yeah. So let's want to just want to just get to it. Let's get to jump it. Right in. Oh, let's, let's jump just right go in. Go for it. Here's, here's our Sean McAdam interview. We are joined by Sean McAdam of mass live formerly and this is this is going to be a huge stretch of formulas because you've done just about everything you've done. You've worked just about everywhere. He's worked at the Herald. He's worked at ESPN, Fox Sports. The I want to get this correct. The Journal in Rhode Island. Providence Journal. Yes, that was the Providence world, Journal. Yes. Yep. And he was also on WEEI with our friend Rob Bradford for quite a bit with a stint of doing color commentary with Nesson. So you, it, when I say you've done it all, you really have done it all. I, I guess I can't keep a job, um, but I keep finding other ones. So that's the that's the best option there, I guess. Everyone wants you. That's the way to look at it. Thanks. 
but I want to get right into this. And it's like sure. a general question because we just talked about how long you've covered the Red Sox. Um, when you look at the waves of this ownership and by waves, I'm talking, you know, 04 winning it right off the bat, but then mm-hmm. 04 and 05 to 07, 08 to 2013 and then 2014 to 2018. And now this period that we're currently in 2019 to forever, how long we are until the Red Sox win another World Series. What do you notice about this current wave or this period that ownership is in and how they're handling it compared to those different eras or periods of Red Sox ownership for them? Well, so I would say there's two pretty obvious things. One, uh, which may be less important than the second one, but one is visibility and availability. Um, when John Henry and Tom Warner first arrived in town in 2002, they were ubiquitous. You, you could find them everywhere. They would talk to fans. They were available. They were invested. They were interested. <coughs> uh, that has stopped cold, uh, particularly since 2018. Uh, John Henry was uh, starting to withdraw a little bit more leading up to that, but Since then, well, let's put it in perspective. The last time John Henry uh, made himself available for any sort of question and answer or or traditional press conference setting other than the town hall thing in Springfield and winter weekend last January, which was brief, um, the last time was the day after Mookie Betts was traded. So February of 2020. So we're going on, you know, we're coming up on four years of John Henry really not taking questions from any of the media that cover the team on a regular basis. He did speak briefly with Mike Silverman uh, in Dallas at the recent winter meetings, uh, owners meetings rather. Um, He did take (coughs) some questions in written format last February from a couple of reporters, including myself. Uh, But in terms of the sort of availability that there used to be from the top of ownership and John Henry remains principal owner, and sort of the face of the ownership group, uh, that's completely changed. The other, um, less so in the years leading up, but certainly last season, is the spending. Um, For most of their first 20 years, the Red Sox were reliably and consistently among the top five spending teams in the game. Uh, They were number of times, they were number two, there were even two occasions as recently as 2018 and 2019, where they were tops in payroll. That has started to ebb backwards the last few years. Even if you throw 2020 out the window as a weird year with the pandemic, uh, the shortened season, nobody knew, no fans, revenue down. Okay, let's throw that out. The last couple of years, it's been a backward slide. Uh, And for the first time uh, in their ownership in 2023, they were not in the top 10. You you can look at different accounting. There are different methods and metrics. But most people would say they were somewhere between 10th and 12th or 13th. That clearly is a significant drop. And that's why I think this winter is going to be so interesting to see. Is that a one-year aberration? Was that a reload? Was that a retrenchment? Was that a let's reset the tax rate? We're not there yet. And then come back to our traditional spending methods in 2024 and forward? Or is this a sign of things to come? So I would say those two things, uh, the, the profile and availability and 
involvement of the of ownership and then their commitment to the franchise when it comes to being measured by payroll spending. Sean, what do you think caused that change? Because it's been pretty noticeable, as you said, they used to be available all the time, ownership, I mean, and now it's few and far between whenever we see them. What do you attribute to that change? Well, I, I think on John Henry's part, and to be fair, Tom Warner has maintained some availability uh, sessions uh, at the recent press conference where Craig Breslow was hired. He was there briefly, did speak with reporters, uh, did make himself available last year at the end of the year. So Tom Warner's been a little bit more forthcoming and a little bit more available. But again, I think we kind of measure this by John Henry, because even though he's not the sole owner or even the majority owner, he is the principal owner and the guy that most people associate with Red Sox ownership. Uh, I think with John, it's personal. Um, He has said to me and others that he does not regard himself as a good communicator in those instances. He beats himself up because he says invariably he says something he shouldn't or he doesn't make something clear enough or he says something that leads to ridicule or criticism or further questions. He is a, um, you know, he's a very successful businessman who I think even people who have not had any personal interaction with, you can kind of get, and as, as you observe from a distance, that this is not a guy who is a real, who's a, a hail fellow, well-met, um, you know, comfortable just with engaging people. He is awkward socially. Let, let's just call it right there. And he, uh, it, came, it got to a point where, uh, you know, they would have to issue... Uh, clarifications about something he said, or walk back something he said, or, and I think he's just decided, you know what, screw it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not good in that forum. I'm not good at the give and take. Uh, I'm not good in, in explaining our path forward sometimes. So I'm going to let others uh, to a to somewhat of a degree, Tom Warner is chairman, but mostly he has deputized Sam Kennedy, president and CEO, to be essentially the face of the franchise. Yes, there's a GM slash chief baseball officer, whether it be Dave Dombrowski or Heim Bloom or Craig Breslow. There's a manager who faces the media every day. But in the big picture, we need Red Sox reaction to a firing, a trade, a free agent signing whatever, it's Sam Kennedy doing the heavy lifting because John Henry has decided for a variety of reasons, much of them personal comfort, that he does not come off well, doesn't enjoy doesn't uh, enjoy that give and take with reporters, and he's decided he's not going to do it. I think, and I've told him this, not that he's listening to me or soliciting advice from me, that he's doing his himself and his franchise a disservice because I think it sends the message, and I don't think this is accurate, but a lot of people look at it and say, ah, he doesn't care anymore. When was the last time he talked about his team? When was the last time he was there when they had bad news or good news? He's not there anymore. He has other business interests. He's got Liverpool. He's got the Penguins. He's got Roush Racing. He's got other stuff. He's got Fenway Sports Group. He's had other investments. John Henry doesn't care about the Red Sox. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's accurate. But I understand why people come away thinking that. 
And I, as I said, I think he has done his franchise and their brand and his own personal reputation uh, disrepair by not being more available and not being on site more often than he is. You know, I and I agree with you. I think most fans agree with you that he's doing, you know, himself and the team a disservice by not showing up, uh, which is why I think it was so good when someone like Tom Warner did show up when Craig Breslow was hired. And you mentioned uh, that he spoke to the media briefly and, you know, he dropped that quote that's becoming pretty famous throughout the offseason that the Red Sox are going to be full throttle right. this offseason. Uh, from what you've heard, do you believe that to be true? And if so, what do you think their definition of full throttle is? Yeah, um, you you wouldn't be able to tell it from the first three weeks of the hot stove season, but <clears throat> let's be fair, it is the first three weeks. And other than maybe a handful of pitching signings, uh, the majority of which probably didn't interest the Red Sox in the first place, you could certainly make the case that Aaron Nola would have been a good fit here. I think you could make less of a case that Sonny Gray would, and the rest, frankly, aren't worth it, you know. Uh, Lance Lynn, Kenta Maeda, uh, those are not fixing the Red Sox issues. They need impact starting pitchers, and only Gray and Nola really fit that category. So to, to criticize them as, as not having done anything, uh, it's premature to do that. Now, if we get you know, to Christmas and New Year's and there's not some big moves, then it's fair game to question what their, what their plan is. I, I, my sense, and I think this was going to be the case had Bloom been retained. And I think it's particularly the case now that they have made a change at the top. I think they understand going forward that at least this offseason they need to spend because uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, they finished last two years in a row, last three times out of four, and last six times out of 12. To me, that's inexcusable for a big market team. You should not have that that um, that great of variance. Now, I, to be fair, they've won two World Series in that time frame too, and that should not be dismissed. No one else has won two World Series in the last 10 years. No one has won four this century. So, uh, you know, to perspective is needed there. But the fact that the Boston Red Sox, with their resources, with their revenues, with what they can do, have finished sixth, the la- uh, have finished last six times in the last dozen years is is inexcusable. And I think they realize they have to buy back the public's trust and confidence in them. And to do that, you've got to spend money. And more to the point from a baseball standpoint, the roster is at a point now where you can see the uh, the foundation for a pretty good team going forward. I don't think it's there yet. But you look at cornerstone guys like Devers, you look at guys like Casas, um, you, you see Duran making a big step forward, uh, you see a healthy Trevor Story, you see Raffaella, you see Abreu with some potential, you see a bullpen that's gotten a lot better. It's obvious the steps they need to take to take that leap into competitive and October baseball, and that's the starting rotation. And they know that one way or the other, they're going to spend money to do that. Now, I've also heard in the last couple of days that their primary focus is 
that they're going to trade. They're going to focus first on trying to trade for starting pitching. And if they're unable to fill that fully, then to move on the free agent market. I think there's some risk involved there. What happens if you can't make any trades? And by the time you turn to the free agent market, it's all picked over and Yamamoto and Snell and Montgomery are all gone. Then what do you do? But I've heard from people inside the organization that there is a realization that now is the time. Now, is that going to be an annual thing? Are they going to be, you know, north of 225 million with their payroll every year going forward? That I can't say. But I have been told that it is their intention and their acknowledgement that they have to spend pretty aggressively this winter to get back in the conversation. So when we talk about full throttle and we, we, as you just discussed, talking about that in the sense of spending and you dabbled on it, you touched upon it, trading, uh, you can also go full throttle with that because the Red Sox have recuperated their farm system to the point where they are considered a top organization in the league where they, they do develop great players or not so much develop. We're still waiting on pitching at that AAA level. But they do have some high names that they've drafted and that they've brought in. Anthony, Mayer, now Teal. Are they going to be full throttle on dealing some of these guys? Are they going to be less skittish the way that Bloom may have been with sending some of these guys out for big name returns? You know, guys like Cease. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, they're at a point where, as you said, they've built up the inventory. Uh, they they brought in Bloom to bolster the, uh, you know, the, the system to acquire draft picks, to get better young players, and to create that feeder system that allows you sustainability, which has been the big buzzword the last few years. They're not totally there yet. They're not a top three farm system, but by most every account and accounting, they're a top 10 system, and they have players that other teams want. So there's that. There, there's also this. Uh, and I've written about this a few times. Uh, when you're Heim Bloom and you're the guy drafting Roman Anthony and you're the guy drafting Marcelo Meyer and you're the guy drafting Kyle Teal and people like that, there's a certain attachment to those players. You have an investment in them. Uh, you, you have uh, had research. You've used your scouts and your cross checkers. You've maybe even gone and seen the top guys, put your own eyes on them. Uh, you know, they're your babies. You, you have accumulated them. And in your mind, if you're Bloom, they're the guys that are going to, you know, be part of the foundation going forward. Craig Breslow doesn't have that same attachment to these guys. He's not, boy, I can remember, you know, seeing um, Marcelo Meyer in Chula Vista, California on a, on a cool March day four years ago. He doesn't have that connection to those guys. And that doesn't mean he's going to strip mine the system. It doesn't mean he's going to empty the coffers and and move every prospect that gets asked about. But I think that that barrier, that wall that exists when you have a guy who has drafted and developed and signed and were in on was in on the ground floor of these guys arriving in the organization. When that guy's gone and the new guy doesn't have those ties. I think it's logical to assume that more prospects get moved. Um, again, not wiped out. It's not like uh, Craig Breslow is going to turn into Dave Dombrowski and and be packaging two or three guys in every trade he makes. It just makes it 
more likely that some of them get used to bring back help for the major leagues. And to my mind, there's nothing wrong with that as long as you do it in moderation. You know, there, there are there are um, you know there are two possible ways to contribute if you are a top prospect. One is to make your way up the ladder and contribute at the major league organization and the parent club and become a regular contributing player. And the other is to be put in a trade to acquire major league help that is major league ready. And, you know, you you can find uh, whether it's the Dodgers or the Braves or whoever you want to hold up as a model organization, uh, as much as well as they've done developing and, and feeding their own roster, they've also made some acquisitions and signed some free agents and given up draft picks and traded prospects to get to where they are. And that's just one more method to utilize. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So, Sean, you, you just brought it up and you mentioned it in your article yesterday, too, that the Red Sox are looking to address their pitching via the trade market first. Um, and you also mentioned yesterday in the article that they're not. They haven't to this point been in on Dylan Cease, uh, but I'm just curious your thoughts on what you think the Red Sox are more likely to be in in on in terms of trade candidates. Like you've got the guys who have been named over and over again by the media, uh, expiring guys like Burns, Bieber, Glass now, and then also Cease, even though he's got two years. Do you think the Red Sox are more likely to be in on those guys, or do you think that they're more likely to be in on guys who haven't necessarily been talked about as much that maybe have a little bit more control? Because I know they talked about that a lot last year, wanting a controllable starter. A lot of us pointed to the Mariners guys. Yep. A lot of us point to the Marlins, maybe like Brady Singer in Kansas City, guys like that. Uh, what, what do you think? What do you think they're more likely to be in on? I, you know, at the end of the day, I, I would not be surprised if the Red Sox achieved their two starting pitcher requirement by signing one as a free agent and trading for another. The question is, where are those trades made? And you make a good point that there are some guys that they could that are more established, like Burns, like Cease, like Glass. Now, I I think you almost have to have Glass now in a separate category because I have a hard time thinking Tampa Bay is going to trade him within the division to a team that has the wherewithal to extend him. You know, the last thing you want to do if you are the Rays is have to face. Tyler, uh, you know, is to face Glass now four times a year for the next five years if the Red Sox get him and then extend him for another four or five years. So that one is almost a separate category. But I wouldn't be surprised if they make an aggressive move and and go after someone like Burns or even Cease, although they haven't to date. And I, just speculating here, I think a lot of that is because of what the asking price was last July and August when the name Brian Bello. Uh, Bayo uh, got brought up. That is a walk away. Thanks. We don't need to know anymore kind of name for the Red Sox, as it should be. I mean, it makes no sense to trade five years of Brian Bayo for two years of Dylan Cease, no matter how good Cease is, because Bayo is what you've been building toward. This is the first 
homegrown starting pitcher that is anywhere close to being, you know, a, a, a contributing major league starter and a good one that they've had probably going back since Clay Buckles. And they're not about to give him away, nor should they. I can, I can think of almost no one that I would, uh, another major league starting pitcher that I would trade uh, Brian Bayo for, not because I think Bayo's necessarily going to be a, you know, a, a perennial Cy Young candidate, although who knows, he could be. But even if he's a solid number two, which I think is probably a more realistic ceiling, the fact that you have him cost controlled for another two years, three years, and then five years total, it makes no sense. You're, you're undoing what you've set out to do. But I, I do think that they could, um, you know, go after a guy with only a year or so of control left and then try to extend him right away. Or, you know, they could see what Seattle wants for Kirby or Gilbert or one of those guys uh, with the knowledge that that is going to be a painful asking price, too. Uh, even if you get away with not putting Bayo in that deal, you might have to put Meyer or Anthony or Teal or one of those guys to headline a deal with other young, controllable players. But this is where they've gotten themselves by doing such a poor job developing pitching for the last 15 years. You either pay through it, pay for it through the nose in the free agent market, or you make a real painful trade to give up some controllable young players in a deal. Love all those names. Sean, I got one that I want to throw at you, and I just want to hear what you think about the fit. This is a name I haven't heard much at all, if at all. So we talked about Corbin Burns. Milwaukee also got rid of Woodruff. Seems like they're primed for a rebuild. You never know, but it looks like it's trending that direction. And the guy I'm talking about is Freddie Peralta. Now, this guy's like a good number two, number three starter. He's 27 years old. He's only making five and a half million this year. And then the following two years, eight million with a club option. And it's a bit of a catch-22 because that contract definitely makes him a trade asset for Milwaukee where they can get a haul. But it also makes him kind of a guy that maybe they want to keep because it's such a cheap contract. So just want to know where you fall in that camp. Is that a guy that you could see maybe the Red Sox or even another team trading for, or is that someone you think is going to stay put? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think you broke it down pretty well there. The fact that he is under a relatively affordable deal in what is the smallest market in the game probably m brings him to a point where, uh, you know, the Brewers are not going to move him because he is so relatively affordable. Uh, why do that when you can, they've already cut their losses on Woodruff. He's out there. Uh, you know, I wouldn't slam the door on that for the Red Sox. That would kind of be a James Paxton like deal, right? Where you sign Woodruff for two years and an option, knowing that you're not going to get anything out of them for 24, but hoping that the payoff comes in 25 and you have him to a reasonable deal then because he's got to sign kind of a make good deal uh, for him to come back and pitch healthy again. Uh, Burns is more expensive. We know of the bad blood that exists after the arbitration case. Uh, Adamas, their shortstop, who could also fit here as someone that could play second base is another option. I mean, you know, there are a couple of teams, and Milwaukee's one of them and Seattle's another, where you could really see this morphing into a multiplayer deal where the Red Sox address a couple of needs 
led by the starting pitching. But I love the idea of Freddie Peralta. I mean, get creative. Don't just go after, you know, well, Corbin Burns is the Brewers' best pitcher, and he's only got a year left, and he's pissed at them for how he hand, they handled arbitration. So you can make a deal there. Yeah, you can. But, you know, is getting Freddie Peralta in his years of control and the lesser salary, is that the smarter play? Um, one thing I sense from Breslow is that he's going to be creative, that he's he's open to a number of different avenues and that, you know, Peralta would be the kind of guy that would interest him. I, I say that with no inside knowledge or anybody telling me that, yeah, they, they've had some conversations there, but I think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Sean, I've got a little bit of a question that it's we keep talking about pitching because pitching has been the biggest woe of this team for a few years. And one of the big moves that I think was made, and it's not really being considered an acquisition because it's not technically an acquisition, but the hiring of Andrew Bailey. And you were fortunate to cover this team in 2013, and you've been able to cover both the two new guys that are here, Andrew Bailey, who's not so much of a front office guy, but a coaching staff personnel, and then also Craig Breslow, front office. Are we making too much of a big deal out of these guys being from 2013 and having chemistry because you typically look at, you know, the manager hiring out his coaching staff and the fact that Alex Cora wasn't really the one talked about in all of this, but Craig Breslow was the one talked about in all this because of that relationship that they have. Is there a weird dynamic going? This is kind of a two part of question. Is there a weird dynamic going on that is I, I think it's for the positive where Alex Cora is interacting a whole lot with the front office, despite saying that he's doing only the bidding of talking to whoever they want him to talk to and B should we be making such a big deal out of Andrew Bailey coming into the Red Sox system and what he's able to do for them? Well, I, I, you know, you're correct that the, the Breslow connection is the most obvious thing that probably landed them. Andrew Bailey, Um, you know, without Craig Breslow here, he may well have been interested in that bench, uh, the bench, coach job with the Yankees. He has a little bit of a relationship with Aaron Boone, as I understand it. Um, that would have allowed him to be even closer to his Connecticut home. It may have uh, allowed him to make more money as bench coaches typically, um, you know, in general, make more money than pitching coaches, unless you're a Mike Maddox or Brent Strom kind of, you know, top echelon of the game. Uh, so the, the Bailey, uh, the, the, the Bailey Breslow connection is a real one and it probably tipped the scales in the Red Sox favor. But I can tell you that there was talk about Bailey being hired as the Red Sox pitching coach almost immediately after um, they made the change at pitching coach with Dave Bush after the season was over. That was a name that was already on the Red Sox radar. The fact that Breslow got the job as chief baseball officer only enhanced that and increased the chances of it happening, and indeed it did. But I think Cora was a guy that had heard a lot of good things about Bailey um, and was on board with the contributions that that he would made. So while there's an, a more direct linkage to Breslow in their history, being on the charity board, being teammates both in Oakland and here, um, I, I think Cora would have been fine with the Bailey hiring, even if there were another chief baseball officer that had been brought in and suggested the same thing. Um, 
in terms of, you know, what does it mean to have somebody from 2013? I don't think it means all that much that it was 2013. It could have been 2011. It could have been 2010. It could have been 2014. It could have been a number of seasons. I think the fact that Bailey pitched here and experienced the good and bad and had, you know, injuries and underperformed, as he said in his introductory call, and experienced both ends uh, or, you know, opposite extremes of the Boston experience where you're part of a championship team and you ride in a duck boat parade and you're experiencing the very highs. And then you're also experiencing the lows and the disappointment that come with finishing last and all those things. I, I think to have the complete Boston experience is to understand is to have somebody who's working with pitchers who understands what it's like in this market and uh, can help them through some of those things. Uh, the fact that he won is nice. The fact that he was part of a world championship is nice. I'm sure that's a, a career highlight for Andrew Bailey in terms of his playing career. But I think it's more important that he's been here and knows what it's like to hear it when you're warm, warming up in the bullpen, but also to to realize how rewarding an environment it can be when you do well. So, Sean, we, we've talked a lot about pitching. I kind of want to shift gears and start talking about the bats. Uh, one thing that we talk about a lot and you've certainly written about is John Henry's sort of skittishness to uh, invest in mega deals, certainly to guys, you know, approaching 30 or, or even over 30. Uh, but a guy that that's going to be a free agent in a year that is not approaching 30 is Juan Soto. And uh, Ken Rosenthal reported recently that it's not a matter of if the Padres are going to trade him. It's a matter of who's going to acquire him. Do you see the Sox entering the bidding for Juan Soto at all, or do you think they're going to save their bigger strikes just for pitching? Yeah, I, I think more the latter. I, I think that, um, you know, who wouldn't want to have Juan Soto, right? But um, I, I think you have to look under the hood here and see that there are some um, some discouraging elements to acquiring him. Uh, one is obviously the control issue. Uh, he's free in a year. He is also represented by Scott Boris. What do we know about Boris and his clients? He typically does not sign extensions. He typically takes his player into the market where you can have 30 teams bidding for him instead of just one. He already has turned down $450 million with Washington prior to the trade to San Diego. And San Diego, having given up a boatload of great prospects to get him, having not won with him in a season and a half, and now forced by payroll concerns to move him, is going to look to make a killing and get some of those prospects back because they have emptied the tank to get so many of the guys that they've acquired the last couple of years. Now they have to start to replenish that a little bit while they look at the bottom line. So to give up the kind of talent it would take and realize that that gives you no particular edge in extending him, that to me would be troublesome. Also, um, you know, while recognizing that Soto is a generational kind of offensive player, 
He's not a very good outfielder. In fact, he's a lousy outfielder. You could hide him in left field at Fenway, although they're already doing that to a guy that they've committed to for four more years. Uh, and I think Yoshida is a is probably a better outfielder than Soto. So that puts it in perspective. Um, so that's an issue. The fact that he's left-handed is an issue. Now, look, when a guy has you know, uh, an OPS plus of 157 and has numbers that make people make comparisons to Ted Williams. Yeah, he's a great, great offensive player. And you take him whether he hits left, right or both. But at some point, when you look around that lineup and see that you've got Devers left-handed, you've got Casas left-handed, you've got Yoshida left-handed, you've got Duran left-handed, You've got, for now, Verdugo left-handed. And then think about guys that are on the come here, like Meyer and others that are left-handed. At some point, you have to say, whoa, we've got to have some balance here. So I think cost, um, inability to guarantee that you can extend him, and then the gargantuan amount of money it would take to extend him, his defensive shortcomings and the left-handedness are all mitigating factors there um i think he's probably a better fit elsewhere as fun as it would be to watch that guy you know and to think about you know i saw something today that he's actually younger than josh young who was you know finished what fourth in the al rookie of the year balloting that's how much is in front of juan soto i mean the guy's not quite 26 and you could get him for the 10 prime years of his career if you were willing to spend a half billion dollars. But there, there's some, as I said, mitigating circumstances that to me are going to tell the Red Sox, he'd be great, but we have too much other stuff to do and it's not the best fit for us. So the way that Soto has been discussed, it almost feels like the baseball community, reporters, fans, people around the game, it sounds like he's as good as gone, is there any chance he stays in San Diego for 2024? And if so, like, if the if the vibe is that he's going out, doesn't that crush San Diego's ability to negotiate with other teams? It certainly impacts it. Um, but when you're talking about a guy who's that good and, as I said, is sort of a generational talent, at least offensively, and you think, you know, he would, uh, sorry to say, be a great fit for the Yankees because – they need a lefty bat and they need an outfielder and, you know, let them worry about how much it's going to cost uh, in terms of talent to give up in a trade and then to extend him and then deal with whatever deficiencies he's, he has as a defender. But he fits them, you know, much better. And, and to me, there are going to be teams that are going to line up. Now, maybe they're not going to get the haul that they thought because he's I mean, what happened with Mookie Betts? That was a great guy coming off an MVP season and certainly a more complete player than Soto. A much, much better base runner, a much, 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 much better outfielder. And look at the haul that the, the, the Red Sox got for him. It was not a haul. It was 50 cents on the dollar. Now, <clears throat> I think Soto's going to do better than that, but that's sort of a cautionary tale of what a great player with only a year of control left is going to fetch on the opening mark on the open market. So you brought up Brady bats 
And that is something that we have been talking about for a few weeks now, just because of how glaring of an issue that is. And we even did an episode where we tried to, you know, do the SUV of Red Sox issues, the offensive side, where we're trying to get a second baseman that is a righty bat. Is it something as simple as a Band-Aid patch? Because that is, I mean, the last four years with Heim Bloom, that is what we've been looking at, where we're trying to figure out, you know, square peg getting into that round hole where we need a second baseman, we need a righty, we're doing exactly that no matter what it is, and we're not going to overextend on that. Right now, doesn't have to be a second baseman, just righty bat. Do you think the Red Sox overextend on a, a righty bat, or are they going to do some bit of a patchwork because they are so concerned with getting their two starting pitchers right now? Yeah, I, I think pitching is such a priority, and it should be. And this being a particularly good and not deep, but top-heavy free agent pitching market, uh, I think they have to marshal most of their resources towards solving that. Uh, conversely, it is not, as you guys know, a good position player free agent market. I mean, when when you know you're, you're talking about a handful of guys uh, that are going to, you know, obviously Otani, not right-handed, obviously, but you know, w- when you take him away from the offensive side. I mean, the free agent market is not good at all. You know, when when you've got guys like Jorge Soler as being maybe the third or fourth best right-handed option, <clears throat> he's a glorified DH. He'd probably do a lot of damage at Fenway, but it doesn't seem like a good fit here. So my feeling is that, um, you know, they, they spend a lot of money or give up some prospects or both to get the pitching situated, uh, then – 25 is the year that they anticipate that Meyer, Anthony, and Teal are all going to start contributing at the major league level. Well, what does that do? Uh, That's three guys making major league minimum for 2025 and not much more for 26 and 27. So while you may be be paying Yamamoto $30 million because you signed him for those couple of years, uh, you're going to have some additional payroll flexibility. You're going to have sale coming off the books after 24. Um, You know, you'll be halfway through the Trevor Story deal. Uh, The Devers deal has some time to run, but that's really the only big money that you've committed to, plus whatever they do this winter for pitching. So I, I think, I also think that, you know, offensively, this team could use an upgrade. Um, they were, when it comes to, uh, you know, OPS plus last year, they were exactly a hundred, which makes them a very average team. Now they were in the top 10 and run scored. Um, and there are some formidable guys in that lineup anchored by Devers and Casas going forward, but it's not a powerful lineup. There's, you know, if you were to, if we were to sit here right now in late November and say, how many guys on that roster hit 30 home runs next year? You would expect Devers. You would expect Casas would be able to make that leap. He was at 23 last year, despite you know doing very little for the first two and a half months. Th- those are two. What's, what's the other one? Is there anybody else that you think is going to hit 30 or even 25? Maybe Story Healthy gets you 25, but they could use some offensive upgrades. But I think you can only do so much in each offseason. Um, I think they're probably going to piece together. I'll tell you, Guy, I wrote about this last week. 
that I think would be an intriguing short-term commitment that would be a decent bat and fit in some other ways for them. And that's Mitch Garber. Uh, whether that is as the second catcher and you move on from McGuire or move McGuire to address something else, or as a third emergency catcher, as a guy that could, you know, give you 90 games as DH and another 25 as the right-handed alternative at first to give Casas some time off his feet. He's a great clubhouse guy. He's got a reputation as a good leader. Um, to me, that would be a, a affordable way to replace not only Turner's offense, but some of his off-field contributions, while also giving you the luxury of having a third catcher that could move back there if you want to pinch run for one of the – you wouldn't really pinch run for Wong. He runs very well for a catcher. But for McGuire, if you want to hit for one of those guys, that gives you some options. I can't think he's going to you know, make a ton of money. You know, he's probably uh, you know, a $10 million a year guy for a couple of years. Uh, I think that would be an affordable way to give them a righty power bat, uh, bring in some of the intangibles that you would lose with Turner – and give you some flexibility at DH. Good Boston name, too. Yeah, Gava. perfect. Gava. Gava. <laughs> hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging in fact wasabi is up to 80 percent less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from wasabi's ai enabled intelligent media storage wasabi air to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals data deletion and ransomware wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. Um, so, Sean, another another area where they could uh, upgrade bat-wise would be at second base. Uh, we talked about it a little bit. I just wanted to know where you think their head's at there. Uh, is it something that they haven't even really begun to touch because the starting pitching market is so hot right now? Uh, do you think that they're going to approach that via the trade market? There's some good players like you know, Jorge Polanco's out there. There's a couple others. Or uh, do you think they go the free agent route? I know we've heard some uh, talk about Whit Merrifield. I was curious, uh, your thoughts on second base. Yeah, I, <clears throat> you know, Merrifield would be interesting because he, he would sort of be a good Kike Hernandez, right? A guy that that can move around but can actually still play. And who knows with Hernandez's issues uh, physically the last couple of years, maybe that's an unfair swipe at him. But he certainly did not contribute much for, you know, really the last two seasons here. But Merrifield's a guy who profiles as someone that you can trust in the infield, but also uh, athletic enough to contribute in the outfield. Um, you could DH him. He's still got a little speed and base stealing ability. So that's an interesting name, but it's really about the only name on the free agent market. And there'll probably be some competition for him. And I don't know that they want to expand 
expend the energy and maybe even a portion of the budget that it's going to take to get him to a two-year deal. I think they also have to figure out, all right, what does second base look look like in 2025? Do we move Trevor's story back there and play Meyer at short? Do we have Meyer handle second? Is Nick York a guy that we can count on at all? So I, I think they'd be wary about getting into any kind of multi-year commitments, although with a guy like Merrifield, you do have the positional versatility that could maybe make that a little more palatable over the long term. Um, I think it's more likely it's a trade and it's a bridge guy that's there for a year or two. Maybe, you know, maybe that's Adamus as part of some bigger deal with Milwaukee, move him over to second. Uh, maybe Polanco. We know the Twins are also going to cut payroll. He's going to be made available. Uh, that's a possibility. Um, I don't, I'm not saying they don't care about it. I just don't think it's the priority uh, that it's that 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 you might like it to be. Given that, as you said, they're I think they're pretty locked in on pitching for now. So we gotta we gotta ask the question. <laughs> oh boy, I've I've been the one to be the biggest optimist on this entire show. They keep trying to walk me off this ledge. Shohei Otani. Is there is there reason to still be believing in this? Is there reason to even consider it? I mean, if you are steering the ship for Red Sox fans, are you steering them away from the iceberg that is Shohei Otani Hope? I've said this since about midway through last year, and and this sounds like I'm um, sitting on the fence, but it's how I feel. I would not rule it out, but I do not expect it either. Okay. Uh, I, I think they're, you know, so you're saying there's a chance uh, that that's that's all I need. That's, that's all I need, Sean. Chance. Look, I think in a lot of ways, he makes a lot of sense. Um, but most of those issues and most of those positives are from a business perspective rather than a baseball perspective, which doesn't mean he'd be a disaster. He, look, he's the most unique player in modern baseball history. He's a phenomenon that people are going to talk about and, you know, people are going to say, I saw Shohei Otani when I was a kid, the way they did with Babe Ruth. I, I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that's how he's going to be go down in baseball history. So an opportunity to watch him every day, whether it be as a DH or a pitcher for an extended period of his career would be a godsend, whether you write about it or just talk about the Red Sox or you're, you're just a fan and you want the opportunity to see him up close and personal, I think it would be great. From a <clears throat> from a business standpoint, um, he checks a lot of boxes. I mean, Fenway Sports Group is an international marketing sports company, a consortium. There may be, other than maybe Messi or a couple of soccer players that I don't even know about, there may be a uh, two or three bigger well-known athletes in the entire world than Otani, but that's it. We, we, we're not even going to fill up one hand in counting them. So he would be a huge marketing tool. And we know that FSG is very much into 
international marketing. They have Liverpool. They have a partnership with LeBron. You know, this is not just operating on Jersey Street in Boston anymore. There's Roush Racing. There's the Penguins. There's Liverpool. There's all kinds of not not even Jersey Street anymore. Jersey Corner is soon to be. I mean, that's how big they are. don't, Don't discount that whole development plan as part of this too, because if you want tickets and you want traffic and you want people going to restaurants and going into retail places around Fenway as that begins, uh, Shohei Otani guarantees you're going to sell 3 million tickets until he's not playing anymore. And that's significant. Um, He would be a huge, he he would single-handedly turn the perception of the franchise around. You could no longer say, oh, the Red Sox are trying to do this on the cheap. They don't want to spend money. They don't care about the franchise anymore. If they sign Shohei Otani, that goes out the window. Nesson ratings spike through the roof, right? The, 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 the team that used to get regularly get eights and nines in their Nielsen ratings and now gets 2.7 on a on a nightly basis would be up closer to eight and nine in no time. So all those things speak to the wisdom and the positives of going out and getting him. Now the other stuff he's had what we think are two Tommy John surgeries. At the very least, he's had two major elbow surgeries. He had one Tommy John and he either had a second or he had the brace that story had. At that point, you start saying, how much does the body take? How much longer can he pitch doing what he's doing? This is not just a pitcher who's had two major elbow surgeries. This is a guy who pitches and when he's not pitching is hitting 40 bombs and knocking in 100 runs and stealing 30 bases. He beats his body up. How long can he continue to do that? Um, Secondly, we just got done hearing from a new chief baseball officer that he wants flexibility in his DH role, that he does, he would prefer to have the versatility of maybe having a guy there for 80 games a year, but otherwise you give Devers 20 games at DH, you give Yoshida 30 games, you give Casas 15 games. It gives the manager some flexibility. It helps your defense. Now you're getting a guy who can essentially only DH and only DH for the next decade, that's the definition of locking yourself in to a one-dimensional, it seems weird to use that phrase with Shohei Otani, but from a DH standpoint, he is a guy that really is not going to contribute. Now, look, maybe if he gives up pitching in three years, he could be an everyday outfielder and probably a pretty good one. So maybe that equation dynamic changes. But for now, He's an everyday DH when he's not pitching, and we know he's not pitching in 24. To me, the fact that he's not pitching in 24, oh, well, you need to you need to upgrade your rotation and you're spending all your money on this guy, that's not much of it because if you're committing to a 10-year deal, the fact that you're giving up one year of pitching is not a deal breaker to me. But I think there are so many other red flags, his health, um, you know, what it would mean going forward to line up flexibility, left, another left-handed bat, that you're locking in and committing to long-term and the fact that, you know, while it's said that he likes Fenway uh, and people have even brought up the new balance thing. Look, I, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of, of theories that try to get people 
uplifted and excited about the potential for Otani. I have a hard time believing that the fact that his that his big corporation or corporate sponsor has a headquarters in Boston is going to make him want to choose other deals elsewhere. I think we know Otani's going to take the best deal on the table and then all things being equal, you start looking at city and ballpark and franchise and those things. I don't think New Balance is going to swing the is going to. Mm-hmm. It's a twenty six minute walk from the headquarters to Fenway oh, Park. You never know. Already. That's good. <laughs> he has a whole map on social media. Well, <laughs> I, I, so I, this is what happens in pitchers and catchers after the first couple of days when you get bored. So I was just in February and I was kind of like, oh, short term deals. Otani's going to be a free agent next year. Let's see how close the new balance building is to Fenway. You know, stuff that you do when, you ha- when you're when you letting your mind wander. A time on your hands. Yeah. yeah. So I, I was ahead of this whole new balance narrative before everyone else. And I laugh every time I see people get serious about it. Yeah. I, I love it. You know, there may be other factors that lure him here. I, I can't think that the ability to have uh, lunch with the chairman on a regular basis is going to be the thing that decides any of this. Yeah, yeah, we got we got Zoom and StreamYard. We don't. Yeah, thank no. you for dispelling that one. Twenty twenty three. Yeah. So I got one more free agency question. Yeah, and I feel like I'm required by law to ask about the guy that everyone's talking about, Yamamoto. Seems like the greatest fit you can imagine. Twenty five years old, ace potential. The guy's ERA can go up two runs from Japan, and he'd still be very good. Where are we at? Do, do we feel confident that he's coming to Boston? Like the chances, are they are they anywhere remotely high? I just want to get where you're gauging the situation. I, I actually think they have a pretty good chance of getting him. And and I don't say that with, again, I mean, a lot of this is, I, it's kind of why I dismiss a lot of reporting when it comes to free agent. Like, oh, so-and-so, uh, you know, uh, has an interest in, we all know the interest kings thing and all of that. Um, these decisions don't get made in a vacuum because the Chicago Cubs really want Shohei Otani does not mean that the Chicago Cubs are going to get Shohei Otani. There are, you know, probably another half dozen teams that are going to be every bit as aggressive. uh, And the same goes for Yamamoto. Uh, The fact that he comes with no compensation attached, the fact that he's 25, as you point out. And again, here's another, you know, to me that this is, this gives me some reason for optimism. You might otherwise say, well, remember John Henry does not like taking gambles on free agent pitchers into their thirties. True enough. He's made the occasional exception. Uh, David Price, Chris Sale, all that. We know that. The beauty here is that, you know, and one of the reasons that they probably signed Raphael Devers while letting Sander Bogarts walk was the actuarial tables, right? When they extended Devers, he was, you know, 25 going on 26. So you can make that kind of commitment to him where he's only in his mid-30s instead of 40 or 41 or 42 at the end of the deal. It's the same thing with Yamamoto. There's going to be less risk because he's just 25. He's just now coming into his physical prime. And you can tell John Henry, look, even if we give this guy nine, 10 years, he's 34 or 35 at the end of the deal. He might be an average starter. He's not going to be a lousy starter at 34 or 35. And the chances of breaking down are 
you know, are, are far less for a guy in his early 30s than a guy like, you know, Max Scherzer in his late 30s or when he gets up to 40. So no compensation, young age, dominance, and the fact that they've had some success with Japanese players, right? Whether it be Daisuke, Koji, Yoshida, the Yoshida connection can't hurt. It's a familiarity for Yamamoto. It's somebody he knows. It's another Japanese-born player on the roster. You know, they've had translators here. They've had Japanese trainers here. They've dealt with language, culture, food, schedule, all the things that have to be hurdled when you're coming over from NPB to play in Major League Baseball. Um, I, I don't want to get your hopes up and say that this is anywhere near a slam dunk. I just think that they have probably, I would put it this way, I would say their chances are as good as just about anybody. It doesn't make him the favorite, doesn't mean he's coming here, but uh, it, it, you know, when you look at the infrastructure and what they can offer, and I mean that both financially and, um, and what they can offer from their history of having hosted a bunch of Japanese players, many of them pitchers, most of them successful. Uh, you know, the fact that Daisuke uh, last time around, first time around for Otani, was willing to, you know, to, to pitch the Red Sox and be their ambassador for him. That, that speaks volumes to those guys. Oh, geez. You know, Daisuke was a pretty big deal when he came over in 20, in 2007. He chose the Red Sox and he still speaks highly of that experience. That's got to mean something for these guys. And I'm sure Yoshida is probably going to reflect an otherwise positive experience in his first year. So, you know, there's, when you look at their their profile as a team looking to get Yamamoto, there are no negatives that stick out to me. I remember they, they did the uh, the gyro ball song on Nessun when they signed Daisuke. I think it was a gyro ball. That was great. They should play that for uh, Yamamoto. Maybe that'll... I'm going to add a mothballs and have Tom Karen dust it off. <laughs> yes. They also, they should show him the uh, the Okajima song, the Okie Dokie song. Yes. Yep. Oh, my God. That was the that was the first one that came to mind was Okie Dokie song. If we can just get Yamamoto one of his At the end of... 2013 and you know he he speaks highly of his time here and that that's got to mean something so um yeah look the yankees are going to be in the mets are probably going to be in the dodgers they're 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 swimming in the deep end here for this guy because he after otani is the most sought after free agent on the market this year and he's going to get a ton of money and he's going to probably get 10 years and uh, you know it's not going to be easy but as i said there's nobody Going in where you say, well, they got to hope that the Yankees trip up or the Dodgers screw up. I, I would put the Red Sox on equal footing with just about anybody. Oh, that's that's the optimism I wanted to hear as we wrap this up. Sean, we really appreciate it. You gave us an hour of your time. That's more than we could have ever asked for. Uh, one last question uh, to, to kind of send the people out on a, another good note since we're in the holiday season. And we're trying to give everyone some cheer. Terry Francona wrapped up his career this year. You got to cover him. I'm just curious. Everyone has one that has been close to him. Do you have a personal favorite Tito story? Um, I wish I had, had time to maybe get one. Oh, I should have prepped you. Um, or, you know, there are a couple that I would I'm not sure I would feel comfortable telling <laughs> in this uh, environment. Um, uh, Tito could, uh, 
could be more than a little profane. Uh, and there's some great ones there, but um, I, I have to keep a couple of those under wraps. Um, I'm sorry to let you down. I wish I had something that was coming to mind that I could tell. I mean, I, I just, I, the guy was a, uh, he was a joy to cover. Uh, he's, a, you know, I've, I've covered the team for 35 years and he's far and away. Joe Morgan was entertaining. There's some great Joe Morgan stories. Uh, but Tito was the favorite Red Sox manager that I've covered in all my years. Uh, I think he was also, uh, it goes without saying, the best manager they've had in modern franchise history. Uh, I don't know that you could go back. You know, Dick Williams did a great job. There were some others that they had. Uh, but Tito is remembered as the most accomplished Red Sox manager in history. Uh, I talked to him from time to time. He he always cracks me up. He's funny. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, I, I just I don't have one, guys. I feel like I failed you at the end that you set me Are up. Are you kidding me? You put a smile on my face regardless talking about Terry Francona. So that's yeah. all that we could ask for. All right. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad I didn't disappoint too much. I feel like you threw me a... 3-0 cock shot there and I swung through it but um <laughs> but uh he's yeah he he was a he was terrific to cover now, honestly Sean, the fact that you like the fact that you can't tell the stories is kind that's of, how good it is yeah that's yeah. great yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the stories you can't tell that are always the best but Sean thank you very much for hey, joining us today sometimes guys okay you got it I I will take you up on that right. yeah. uh he is at Sean underscore McAdam on Twitter, you can find him at Mass Live, writing all the time, tickling the ivory. Also on the Fenway Rundown with our friends Chris and Chris Catillo and uh, or Catillo and Smith, and of course they have the Insider Text program. So go and check that out. I believe fourteen days free. I think I saw for a nice little trial run. Yep, four ninety nine uh, just- a month, uh, and we're having a lot of fun with that. It's kind of a new feature, but uh, we, we were enjoying it. Awesome. Thank you again, Sean. My pleasure, yeah, guys. Thank you, Sean. You're the best. What an interview. What a time. I, I'll be honest. There was a point where I looked up and we were at the 45 minute mark and I was like, oh my God, we gotta, we gotta give him back to his wife. We're, we've been talking way too long. Um, but I mean, that was, that was incredible. He, he gave us the, I want to come back anytime. He is welcome back anytime. I can tell you that much. Uh, a whole lot of insight, a whole lot of knowledge. If you enjoyed that, go subscribe. Go subscribe to us. And then you know what? Go follow Sean McAdam on Twitter as well, because you owe that to him as well. Let's get into our enough saids and wrap this episode up. Gordo, anything happen uh, since we last talked? And there is Craig Breslow's medical background. (laughs) (laughs) 3.58 a.m. Too. What a weird time. A a 3.58 a.m. tweet from... The legendary Peter Gammons. I woke up to that this morning and I was just awake. That's that what great. makes him the I don't, best. I have no idea. I thought about it for like, and I was like, okay, I'm a little bit sleepy. So I'll think about it later. I'll see if I can like put it together. No, there is just absolutely nothing. I have. I have can I take a I crack at it? Yeah, I, I would love that. Please. Um, so my thought is that he at some point during the night or day, <laughs> who knows? He could be in Dubai right now watching the United Baseball. With, with Christian Vasquez. Yeah, he's just up right now. Um, But I would imagine he saw the Craig Breslow, or not Craig Breslow, sorry, uh, the Jordan Montgomery is going to be working out at Boston College because of his wife pursuing her dermatology degree. So then, lo and behold, Gamo comes in out of nowhere and just goes, 
and there's Craig Breslow's medical degree. So it's I, like maybe, it's like he's gonna chop it up it with, trying with to Montgomery's too. wife. Yeah. No, just imagine I imagine like, they're just talking skin. Didn't delete it either. He's he, he's I don't care. He keeps it he, up. He's tweeted since. I I love him. I love I, like I've, I've said this before on the show. He he has all these weird internet things where he clearly doesn't know like how to use the platform. But then he'll get a scoop. Everyone will laugh at him, and he's right in the end. It's amazing. That's I, such a yep. such a gammon's. I kind of think we signed Jordan Montgomery now. I think the go, the Red Sox go and sign Jordan Montgomery just because of that tweet. Sure. Yeah. Sign I mean, they got Breslow off of a, a of a random gammo tweet. Why not Montgomery? Why you know? You know why not us? Oh, Breslow sees the tweet. He's like. What, what about my medical history? What Just bizarre, man. I love he, it. he calls up his physician in the middle of the night at, at four o'clock in the morning. Not hey, a- Bill, uh, nothing's wrong, but could you just check on my medicals real quick? I'm I'm a little thrown off here. He's like, his doctor's I would give like, anything. I, I already have. Peter Gammons and I have been looking into it. <laughs> yeah, Gammo called earlier. I was wondering why. It was a nice little 3 a.m. call. I didn't understand what he was getting at. I would love to know... Because you know he's seen it by now. I want to know what Craig Breslow thought of that. Like, what was his reaction? Like, my medical? What? What about him? <laughs> what? What about it? Uh, okay. Yeah. No, that was that was yeah. a good enough said. Um, my enough said is Boston College football stinks. I went to the Alex Cora Bowl, also known as uh, the Miami Hurricanes, coming into Chestnut Hill and just curb stomping uh, Baldwin the Eagle like it's American History X. Um, oh, so yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, we left at halftime. It was cold. We were sitting with a bunch of Hurricanes fans. So I hope Alex Corey likes me for that. But I was rocking my uh, my maroon and gold. Um, but they're bowl eligible. Go Eagles. Go Eagles. Oh, so you're a you're a you're a fake Eagles fan. You left at halftime. Yeah, dude. I went to George Washington, where our football team is still undefeated. I didn't forever oh, undefeated you football team. Yeah, okay. No, we did. No. We did have a football team. They went undefeated. We said, you know what? We're taking our ball and going home. No one else can play this game anymore. Turns out people kept playing, but we're still undefeated. Beautiful. Yeah, I can't believe you guys didn't end college football there. But um, you guys good? Can I move on to my enough said? Yeah. You got enough said? Go for it. Oh, yeah. I got enough said, boys. So today, today is uh, Tuesday, November 28th. SNY a uh, New York sports outlet reported that the Yankees, let me, let me get the verbiage, right. They are alone in saving Yamamoto's number 18 for him. So the Yankees are saving number 18 for Yamamoto. And I, I don't even, where do I even begin? This is the most cringe Yankee, typical Yankees. We're the New York Yankees. We're extra special, and we have saved number 18 for you. And not only that, we're the only team that's done it. Get over yourself. My God, they haven't won a World Series since the iPhone 3 was current. They haven't done anything since Instagram was invented. These guys are a regular team. It's like the fans, they live in the past. I'm so, like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm speechless. The dumbest thing I've ever heard. We've saved your number for you. Will you come play for our team now? Shut up. Oh, my God. I, I, I couldn't believe it when I saw that today. I, I laughed, and then I got mad, and then I laughed again. Thank God I can yell on this podcast because that is so cringe, like God-tier cringe. You don't get more cringe than that. 
I'm, I'm like, ugh. like the hair on my arm is sticking up just thinking about it. gross. Whether they get him or not, by the way, just the fact that they think that's even relevant. Here's your number 18. Red Sox don't have number 18 taken either. Duvall's gone. My God, dude, just the most Yankees thing ever. Get over yourself. Thank you. That is going to be so, if they don't get Yamamoto, that is going to be so memeable. Like that's going to be all over the internet. They saved 18. Oh, not like. Was Jacoby Ellsbury the last one to wear 18? Tanaka. He didn't. Okay. Wait, was Ellsbury 18 with the Yankees? Was he I thought Ellsbury was 18 with the Yankees. I can't um, even remember what he was. He definitely wasn't two. I don't know. I can't remember either. I also can't remember the last time they were. Right, Tanaka. You're right, though. Tanaka was 18. Yeah. So They've used this strategy before, and it worked. Yeah, last year, the frigging Yankees World Series drought was bar mitzvahed. Next year, if they don't win in 2024, it's going to have its quinceanera. So congrats to the Yankees for saving Yamamoto's number. Can you imagine thinking that makes a difference? You know, they might get him, sure. But to think that his jersey number, oh, my God. I wish, he, I wish Yamamoto would be like, these guys are such dorks. I, I don't want to. Oh God! Just say I was completely wrong. Johnny Damon was eighteen. It was uh, Jacoby was twenty-two. What was Tanaka? Uh, the double threes, right? Not eighteen. I have no. I don't care about the Yankees oh. that much. Who cares? No, now now right. you're right. You're you might be right, Sammy. Nineteen, nineteen rings more of a bell in my mind than eighteen. That's even funnier. Hey, we didn't do this for Mas- uh, for Tanaka, but for you, Yamamoto. Oh, oh, oh we'll save eighteen. Sick Yang. I'm just imagining Brian Cash. Tanaka was number nineteen. Yeah, so Cashman like how dare they sewer grate? He's like, hey, Yamamoto, hey. I got something for you. I got you want a little taste. You want a little taste of the Yankees? Fires me up. But I also, also on the bright side, I am happy that I can like hate the Yankees because you know with their uh, big four hundred million dollar uh, signing, leaving with a, a toe injury, it's badass. Um, it's all right, they have another like super big expenditure that will probably get hurt. Yeah, no, I mean, Carlos Rodon, awesome signing. ERA was below seven. Stanton. That's great. Yeah, Stanton, he can barely stay on the field. Your own GM hates him. Judge has taken out with a toe injury. Hey, yeah. but you know what? They won a Cy Young. They did. Garrett Cole. Hey, they did. Actually, Hang banner. Actually, can I tell you guys a secret? No. I kind of like Garrett Cole. I think he's kind of funny. Oh. I wish you didn't tell me that now. When he, no, when he did, I think so much less than you right funny, now. Man. Come on. If that was a Red Sox pitcher, we all would be like, all you the, sound like oh, someone yeah, that would reserve a number. Yeah, no, I mean, what numbers? What numbers? Garrett Cole, forty-five, not eighteen. Do you think in the the pitch they were like, "Look, we got three hundred twenty-four million dollars for you, and your favorite number." <laughs> Get Ooh. this: you can have your favorite pitcher's number. You're Get telling this. me. Get this. You're like telling me I can have Pedro Martinez's number, and they're just sitting at the table like, "I thought you were a Yankees fan." They bring in like a. Uh, 1930s newsboy. They're like, here, get this. Garrett Cole, you can have number 45 if you sign here with the New York Highlanders. It's lovely. Just the whole talk. 45's a good number. Don't don't talk down on 45. Do you guys want to know the last Yankee to wear number 18? If you haven't already looked it up. No, let me guess. Let me guess. Uh, Jan Jervis Solarte. Wrong. That's the most random name I've ever... How did that uh, name come to your mind? Chase Headley? Uh, the bringer of rain? Nope. It is uh, Andrew Benintendi. No. World Series That's champion. Andrew Benintendi. Hmm. Ben I feel like that's weird. Hard to picture. Yeah. Very hard. 
yeah anyway yeah i, so, I don't like that at any bit uh, so on that enough said okay that's cool um yeah yamamoto clearly is not going to be a yankee that guy did not listen to the sean mcadam interview and hear the odds that Coop, number 18 though coop you forgot about the number you didn't listen to you didn't listen to sean mcadam he said oh, there's a good chance number 18, number 18. Coop, number nope. 18. sick on that note this has been uh play tessie we appreciate you listening go subscribe whether it's on the odyssey app apple spotify if you're a weirdo on the google app um but just go subscribe wherever you listen and we hope it's on the odyssey app toodaloo